Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Loungewear? Underwear? Those are two questions you might ask if you didn't realise that at BritishBoxers.com the answers are lounge here and under here. Um, That is that they sell super comfy loungewear and underwear made of luxury fabric. Not that they're inviting you to lounge at theirs or underneath theirs, which would be a bit weird and creepy. You name something comfy to wear. Go on, anything. No, not that. No, they don't do trousers filled with marshmallows and that wouldn't be very nice in the summer. Pyjamas, dressing gowns, hoodies, pants. Yeah, all of them. And British boxers make them superbly too while being part of the Conscious Advertising Network, paying their staff properly like, you know, everyone should and are all nice to the planet too. Also like, well, everyone should. What I'm saying is they're properly nice people who make great underwear under there, which isn't under anything, I don't think. I've not visited, but I'm almost certain they have a fact rather than underground lair. If you go to British-Boxers.com and buy nice things, then at the checkout use the promo code PARPOLBRO15 and you'll get a nice 15% off your order and then you can lounge here, there or anywhere you blooming well like. Felt Nout presents Noutflix, a video on-demand service showcasing comedy in the northeast of England. All shows are donated by comedians and all money goes back into comedy in the region. For just £5 per month, you can get interviews, sketch shows, panel shows, kids shows, and stand-up specials from Lost Voice Guy, Seymour Mace, Gavin Webster, Nicola Mantelios, Simon Donald, George Zack, John Whale, Rachel Jackson, Raul Coley, Joby McGeehan, Zoe, Lee Kyle, John Scott, Anya Atkinson, Stephen Petty, Matt Reed, and many, many more. Sign up at netflix.co.uk and start watching now. Felt Now, by comedians for you. Netflix. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that after just one listen will persuade everyone's ears to push for herd immunity. I'm Tin and Duyeb, but this week, as the only person to use Watership Down as an aphrodisiac, Pretty Patel, warns the BBC that their reputation has been highly damaged. Does that mean the entire British Broadcasting Corporation is now qualified to be Home Secretary? I'm not sure how many of the current cabinet ministers have children, or if they just let the Prime Minister and face drawn on a dead Teletubby's stomach, Boris Johnson, fulfil the quota for everyone, but... If they do have kids, are those children taught the same morals and life lessons that other kids receive? Or when their parents occasionally send them a postcard to wherever it is they've been left and neglected for thousands of pounds, do their offspring learn how to do life a bit differently? For example, does the idea, learn from your mistakes, ever pop up at any stage of educational development? Or is it replaced early on with, insist those mistakes never happen despite definitive evidence that even a stupid dog could find by falling onto a keyboard and accidentally entering something into Google? Or even just, what is responsibility? Sounds like a foreign word, so I'd avoid it if I was you. Now have another endangered species on organic crisp bread. This past week has been yet another barrage of reactions and ideas from the government that make you wonder if gaslighting is an adequate enough term for what they do, or if we need to upgrade the phrase to perhaps just British gas, as there's currently enough of it circulating around Westminster to run several cities. 
According to former SPAD and forever scrapyard Mr Meeseeks, Dominic Cummings, the government's original plan to tackle coronavirus was indeed just herd immunity, letting it ravage the population until the only people left would then be deemed healthy enough to compete in running man events for survival. The issue with herd immunity as a strategy, as well, you well know, is that it relies on letting quite a lot of people die, hospitals be overrun, and generally it's like dealing with an escaped lion just by letting it eat people till it gets tired, full, or decides that those that are left aren't the right flavour, so it gives up. The government have, of course, denied that herd immunity was the strategy, and the Home Secretary said it was absolutely not the original policy, which most likely means it was the second or third idea after Pretty Patel realised you can't deport a virus, and that Boris Johnson realised even if you ask it nicely, it won't donate money to get him some wallpaper. Maybe this government are hoping that the country is full of people who would see the reveal of the murderer at the beginning of a Columbo episode and still be surprised by who did it at the end. Because you don't need a former special advisor or indeed investigative journalism, leaked papers or any sort of special revelation to know that the government's original plan for tackling coronavirus was indeed herd immunity when they did actually say that out loud on the TV in front of absolutely everyone. Chief Scientific Advisor and early Jim Broadbent character Patrick Valance said as much in a press briefing and several interviews last March, but then, hey, maybe I'm the idiot for taking it seriously when he could have just been mentioning herd immunity for a laugh to take the piss, like how the government do with levelling up or, you know, doing their best. The Prime Minister told Phil and Holly on daytime TV that herd immunity could be the way and people could just take it on the chin, something that he's also said to many previous partners in the hope to avoid more costly offspring. So maybe it's just a total coincidence that the failure to close borders in time and for the Prime Minister to be out and about shaking hands with people in hospitals caused Covid to get a free key to the land of Britain and show that herd immunity isn't a thing when it can mutate to gain new skills like a germ version of the Highlander. Who's to say? Well, the government apparently who insists that there's no way you'll remember anything from last year because every day in lockdown was exactly the same and it could have just been a disaster movie on Netflix that you're quoting actually. It's hard to suddenly decide that we now trust the word of Dominic Cummings as he states enforcing lockdowns properly was necessary, like a man on a market trying to sell you your own bike back while lecturing you about securing your belongings. Who is the biggest liar? The liar or the man that advised him to lie really well for a year? Uh, both. But every one of Cummings' recent revelations are either already known or entirely unsurprising, and so I guess it'd be odd if they weren't true. Dominic Cummings also revealed that the government were hostile to learning from East Asian countries like Taiwan that successfully halted Covid as they believed that Asians all do as they're told, which won't work here. And you have to ask, I guess, is that really something that the Prime Minister was... Yeah, no, I can't even commit to trying to pretend that he wouldn't have that on a T-shirt. Cummings also revealed that Boris Johnson didn't attend those early Cobra meetings about the virus because he was working on a book about William Shakespeare in order to pay for his divorce, which, I mean, yeah, of course he did. And there's some hope in that that maybe at least Johnson will have learned some lessons from a reread of Macbeth or King Lear, but you know he probably just skim-read Much Ado About Nothing and wrote 4,000 words referring to the bard as Old Willy and said that as all the world's a stage, he's made sure all global exports are now as expensive as Western theatre tickets. So of course he did that. In the same way, of course, leaked documents this week revealed that Boris Johnson had a butler sneak in £27,000 of organic takeaways to number 10 during the pandemic, all paid for by a Tory donor, which seems like a massive waste of money when the Prime Minister is an absolute expert at making a meal of things all by himself. It's still Dominic Cummings who is an expert at lying versus the government who are experts at lying though, which then makes it really tricky to kind of work out what to believe when it comes to current advice. I mean, take travelling abroad. The Prime Minister said Brits should not go to amberlist countries except in extreme circumstances, you know, like his dad owning a house there. But Environment Minister and powerless esper George Eustace said you totes can go to amberlist countries but only if you then spend a week at home when you get back, which as anyone who, like me, has ever said out loud, oh, I need a holiday to get over that holiday, it does sound perfect. However, Health Minister Lord Bethel, the sort of man who looks like he's had an operation to extract any remaining kindness, he said people shouldn't even be going to green list destinations as travelling is not for this year. Which sounds sensible, but then you remember he took his whole shirt off just to get his vaccine jab and it's really hard to know who to trust anymore. If you're not even aware of the system, red list countries are total danger zones so you can't visit there at all and not just because they've listed the UK as one too and wouldn't let you in. Green list places are fine to go to but don't tell Lord Bethel and amber list means get ready to go there but also don't get ready and maybe stop or maybe you can go oh wait what was the light before this one. Personally having heard all the advice I'm going to stick to my guns and continue to not even be able to afford to consider a holiday in the first place. 
Germany aren't letting any UK travellers arrive there without a 14-day quarantine as they've classed us as a virus variant region. So that's another thing we can no longer export to Europe after Brexit. That's really odd, as the government, who definitely didn't want herd immunity as a strategy last year, are really unfussed about the new variant, to the extent that Public Health England released their report about it on Saturday night without any press release, as the rest of us were watching Global Britain get nil poids on Eurovision because our entry looked like the sort of man who'd tell you he's got a special discount for a nightclub as they know him there, and talking sip-lid Amanda Holden dressed up as British icon Emu and reassured everyone about how stupid and ignorant we are. So why would Public Health England want to bother us during that when there's nothing to worry about? They didn't even include the data on transmissions in school children being three times the amount of 20-year-olds because, you know, it obviously doesn't matter when they're only kids and don't have any future prospects anyway. Why release a report at all when rather than have to tell us that vaccines are less effective against variant B1617 unless you've had both doses so it's only young people who are out and about and being social again and working everywhere that are in danger of getting it and transmitting it when they could have just said, ah, this... Nah, it's nothing. You keep repeating how Iceland were robbed of victory last year and we'll just get on with other things. The so-called Indian variant is only 55% more transmissible, so that still means 45% non-transmissible at all, right? That's definitely how a scientist would look at it. It's not even worth asking about the New Yorkshire variant as well that's a triple mutant, meaning it's almost all of the Ninja Turtles. And no, it isn't even more transmissible because it's more stubborn than the other ones or works better in hard water. The Prime Minister still insists there's nothing conclusive on changing the roadmap for everything being open on June the 21st. But based on how things have gone before, you'd be forgiven for wondering if actually we're going to be having an Indian summer. What is a relief is that with systems like Test and Trace in place, it will only help all efforts going ahead. Efforts of the coronavirus, that is, as a glitch meant that more than 700 people and their contacts were not passed to local health teams, allowing the new variant to spread even more quickly. Still, only spending £37 billion on a herd immunity enabling system shows that the government definitely weren't serious about that as a method. None of those are the real stories of last week, though. Nope, the big must-know story is that 26 years ago, dodgy journalist and the dad from American Pie, Martin Bashir, faked bank statements in order to interview one of the only royals anyone even vaguely liked, Princess Diana. So apparently the BBC have ruined their reputation because of one person a quarter of a century ago who used deceitful behaviour but was selfish enough to use it to hold an interview that Diana said she was pleased to have done rather than, you know, use those skills to join the government. Of the paparazzi from newspapers owned by Tory donors who, if you remember or read The Express, have heard from Diana's ghost directly, were actually responsible for her death. Well, they're still cool. They don't need any regulation whatsoever. Johnson said he could only imagine the royal family's feelings, though that could be because both he and they are completely incapable of having any. The Prime Minister said the failings that led to that interview must never happen again because as someone who's now made the same mistakes with Covid three times in just a year, he knows what repeatedly doing the same awful shit can end up with and he's afraid it might give the BBC a 10-point lead. I suppose it's very on brand to not erase history or indeed use it entirely for your own political gain and there's no doubt that while this government refused to be responsible for things they did five minutes ago, the BBC are now under even more threat with next year's charter review, meaning they could well have an external editorial board made up of people who would insist that rather than fake documents in order to interview a royal, we'll just make sure it's better to chase them off the road until they die. Pretty Patel was one of the people insisting the BBC would have to reflect and learn lessons, which is big from someone who can't actually see themselves in a mirror. She spent the rest of the week blocking the report into the 1987 murder of Daniel Morgan, a private detective whose death the Met Police have admitted wasn't investigated properly due to corruption. The report was due out last week, but Patel has blocked it in order to review it first, as she obviously doesn't think that the Met need to reflect and learn lessons from things that happened over 20 years ago. It's like, it wasn't like they were just trying to interview Princess Diana or anything like that, was it? I mean, exactly. Patel was also pictured joining immigration raids in person and surprisingly not wearing a homemade Batman suit or carrying a net as she did it. Instead, she wore a jacket that said Home Secretary on it, just in case the officers didn't know who she was and carted her off as well. Patel says the immigration raids, like the one in Pollock Shields, or the ones that she attended and got to tick off her bucket list, so now I think it's just drowning puppies in a bag and stealing candy from a baby in order to complete it. She said those immigration raids are what the British public voted for and what they want. And hey, look, I don't doubt that some shitty racist people like Patel uh, did vote for that. But for most other reasonable types, the only way we'd want officers bursting into people's homes and sticking them on a plane is because they've won a holiday on a morning TV show. Many Western countries have condemned Belarus for diverting a Ryanair plane flying over its territory so they could arrest a Belarusian opposition journalist, which is a level of terror I wouldn't even wish on the guy that gave me a two-star review at Ed Fringe. 
The authoritarian government faked a bomb threat causing the flight to land in Minsk, and the journalists will now likely face the death penalty for organising protests against evil Jimmy Greaves and leader Alexander Lukashenko. This is state-sponsored piracy and an attack on press freedom, and so now it's up to the EU, the US and all other powers to stand up to Belarus and Russia. On the plus side, for the other passengers of the flight, uh, landing 160 kilometres away from their intended destination of Vilnius meant that most of them just thought it was the closest city airport Ryanair fly to anyway. Transport Secretary and Lost Ground Sloth Grant Shapps has told planes to avoid Belarusian airspace. I'm almost certain he thinks that Pixar film was a documentary. Why renationalise when you can just make sure all the private sector cock-ups happen under one roof with several smaller roofs underneath? Taxpayers' money will now be used to finance investment in trains, but not actually own them or say how much or where the investment should be made. What could sum up railways in Britain more than a lot of money to not get you very far or how you want it? The new quango for rail happenings is to be known as Great British Railways, which a lot of people have criticised or said is a bit like the Great British Bake Off, but I think it's a brilliant name, as long as you say it in a very sarcastic voice. Great British Railways. It would have been even better with an O in front of it. Oh, great British Railways. See? Sums it up perfectly. The government are pushing for a trade deal with Australia that could leave British farmers exposed, something that in the current weather would definitely cause them to get pneumonia. The deal would reduce tariffs on Australian meat products like lamb and beef, which could put British cow and sheep out of business, as in the farmers that do them, not like the cow, not the businesses the cows and sheep own. I don't even know if they have businesses. Uh, the wool industry m- musicals anyway so no i mean the farmers but the government insists that actually it will open up new markets for them but i guess they'll probably be jobs and flee then boris johnson is to marry his fiance and woman who is less lady Macbeth and more lady oceana sherard carrie simmons in 2022 so i look forward to johnson saying in 2023 that the marriage contract is now ludicrous not what they agreed to when he said it was the best deal ever and must be torn up The nurse that cared for Johnson while he was in ICU with COVID last year has left the NHS saying that healthcare staff aren't given the respect or pay they deserve. It's a real shame, not only because the government's neglect of our most important institution is driving NHS workers away, but also that she didn't choose to quit right in the middle of treating him. Conservative MP for Hendon, who's so tedious even his own forehead looks like it's trying to leave him, Matthew Offord, also criticised the BBC this week, asking them to stop the broadcast of Desert Island Discs with legendary comedian Alexi Sale, as they shouldn't give a platform to anyone who excuses anti-Semitism. Yes, Matthew, no better way to fight anti-Semitism like denying a Jewish person a platform. If the BBC had been really clever, they'd have moved the recording to a university campus, and then if the Tories had tried to shut it down, the new free speech policy they'd brought in would have allowed Sale to sue them. And lastly, Labour leader and English electric standard model washing machine Keir Starmer has backed night closures at Primrose Hill Park so it can only be accessed by very rich local residents. The area will have nine foot tall aluminium fences erected round it to stop a rise in crime, apparently. Though I reckon Starmer supported them as it gives him something to sit on when faced with political decisions. Starmer and his team have already fallen for the trap of agreeing to be in a fly-on-the-wall documentary about him being leader of the opposition, because everything they do is in some sort of late 90s format, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's only released on DVD too. People are already expecting it to be like an episode of the thick of it, but my concern is that absolutely no one will know the difference between when the adverts for faceless electrical appliances end and the show starts. Yo, Purple Broads, how goes it? Um, I have just spent a weekend with friends who live by the coast uh, and we went to a restaurant and we sat indoors and we hung out and it was almost, almost normal, right down to my agent waking us up at 6am after I drank far too much the night before and somehow now, a day and a bit later, still feel shit. Um, I don't mean to boast, but it was amazing. Despite the weather being so awful, I was almost certain a cabinet minister must have been in charge of it. Um, I know not everyone can get out and do real life things yet, so I'm sorry if I uh, am making you jealous. But it's goddamn great to, uh, you know, just speak to other human beings, have lengthy conversations about Eurovision entries and how the entire show is clear proof that actually democracy doesn't work. Um, I'm still a bit hungover, though, which is odd. It's like sort of hang never over. I don't really drink very much anymore. And I'm starting to think that now whenever I do uh, have beer, you know, my body overreacts to try and dissuade me from ever doing it ever again is sort of a, a condescending oh no not this shit again you're not 20 anymore so it goes full on hangover as a deterrent still nice to do it every now and then to remind yourself that you can't handle it and you're so mortal that you should probably just sit very still for the rest of your life um but yeah it was good it was very nice it was just it was just lovely uh and not much else to say this week really uh, apart from the usuals um should we go through them may as well right everyone loves routine and familiarity don't they 
Do you know, between you and me, listeners, I regularly think of scrapping the bit at the end of the interview about all the ways you can contact this show. And then I realise, what if that's the only reason you all tune in? And I destroy the immense listenership overnight. Um, plus, I'm also too tired to think of something new. Maybe once it gets to episode 250 or something like that, if we make it that far. Um, but for now, should you fancy sponsoring this show and me churning this thing out weekly for increasingly small amounts of earnings, uh, then please send over even just £1 or whatever you would spend on some ill-advised booze while watching Eurovision to ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. Join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, which really is what I'd love you all to do, is it's that monthly dosh that allows me to pretend to my family that it's worth me doing this, even though they see right through that. And of course, there's also the ACAR supporter page, uh, but I've just sort of accepted that as a mystery now, and I feel if you work out how to donate there, you probably deserve some sort of a prize. Ofs, if you can't do any of that, uh, some new reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts will be mighty tasty and help draw in more listeners who may be gullible enough to donate to me. Um, or failing that, just tell someone you know to give it a go. Um, that's it for chat this week. I'm on another podcast called Raf Chats that came out on Friday, where a nice man called Raf uh, chats to me. It's fairly self-explanatory, um, but he's a very nice man, and we talked about loads of things from diabetes to comedy and all of that sort of stuff. I don't think we even mentioned politics, though, so um, if you need a break from that, but you still want more of me in your week, uh, do check that out. This week's show um, has the brilliant Gracie May Bradley, currently uh, Interim Director at Human Rights Advocacy Group Liberty, um, talking to me all about the ways the government are infringing on our human rights. And in the middle, there's just a wee bit on the report this weekend about everyone's fave new variant. Human rights? Where will it end, I ask? Animal rights? Special rights for children? It's always baffled me why uh, any humans would want to inflict restrictions on human rights, but I suppose maybe it's a personal thing when, like the British government, you're a bunch of barely human wrongs. When it comes to ticking boxes on the Human Rights Act, the UK do all right just by signing up to having one in the first place and therefore immediately getting a starter pack for at least grasping that they're a thing that should exist. In comparison to a number of countries that haven't managed to tick off step one, grab a pen to start considering it or even picked up the right leaflet, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland might seem like places with more freedom than Braveheart on a nudie beach. But in reality, over here, access to the full gamut of human rights very much depends on how many loyalty points you have on your British card. And the current government are pushing through a number of policies that will chip away at some already highly fractured freedoms. That's a terrible analogy for me, because if the freedoms were indeed statues that could be chipped, there's a high chance there'd be more policies put in place just to protect them and stick a union flag on the top. The government have distorted findings of judicial reviews, blocked certain press from asking questions at briefings and removed MPs, the people's representatives, from the right to analyse bills properly by proroguing Parliament in 2019. A move that is classic Johnson's cabinet because they chose the only workplace in the world where a sudden week off is a pain in the arse. So much of our personal data collected through public institutions like the health service has been sold off to companies such as Amazon, making Article 8 of the Human Rights Act, respect for your private and family life, really depend on what you class as privacy. No, Jeff Bezos isn't going to be peeping through your keyhole as you sleep, but Alexa will be telling him how many times a week you listen to the soundtrack for Three Men and a Little Lady and openly weep. Article 7, no punishment without law, doesn't seem to apply to anything the Home Office put people through, as though they've only gone to that part of the Act and added a comma after the first word. And over the past year of the pandemic, this push to limit certain aspects of freedom has become far more of a shove. No, I don't just mean because you couldn't have a pint indoors while licking people you didn't know. I mean things like the upcoming policing bill, which is threatening to really stretch the limits of Article 11, freedom of assembly and association. No, it's not going to clamp down on Lego building or the scouts, but by giving police powers to break up any protest they deem annoying, you'll only really have freedom of assembly or organisation, well, if you are Lego building scouts. Or the new call for voter ID, which will infringe on people's access to voting, as well as meaning even more people will see your embarrassing passport photos. Or there's the limiting of how the government can be challenged in court by judicial reviews, meaning that it will get to the point the only way people can make the government accountable for their regular horrors is by dying and haunting them as a ghost until they give in. So what can we do if one of the best bits of them human rights is the ability to protest against infringements of human rights? And we might not be able to do that anymore. Is it as simple as training our pets to become incredible detectives and vigilantes and hope they'll be more powerful than ever due to the animal sentience bill? Or are there better ways to defend human rights? While the thought of touching most of the people in government makes me feel sick, how do we stop them becoming untouchable? This week I spoke to Gracie May Bradley, currently working as the Interim Director of Liberty, the UK's largest civil liberties organisation that for over 80 years has been fighting to save the rights of anyone who's under threat. 
I actually had Gracie on this podcast ages and ages and ages ago uh, when she was part of Against Borders for Children, tackling data collected on kids by their schools on order of the government and then used against migrant children as part of the hostile environment policy. Yes, that was something that happened uh, under Theresa May uh, and it was awful. So anyway, it was very lovely to get Gracie back on the show in a different but very similar capacity. Uh, As with Liberty, it's not just state surveillance that she's tackling, but also a myriad of different ways the government are trying their best to make sure that fair treatment of people just means rigging the coconut shine being very skilled at dodgems. Near the end of this chat, um, I should just warn you, I say something that I make completely differently in my head and the way I phrase it, I sort of worry uh, it makes it sound like I'm being miserable and demeaning what Gracie has just said. Um, I did check with her afterwards as I felt stupid about it, but Gracie said she knew what I was trying to say, so it was all right. Anyway, I've left it in. You can hear my brain muddle and me sound like an idiot, uh, but it wasn't what I meant. Oh, I'm so stupid. Anyway, enjoy that. And of course, enjoy this whole inspiring chat with Gracie. Here she is. Gracie, it is lovely to have you on the podcast again. Um, after years, I think it was years that we, we last spoke to you. Um, and there's a lot that I, I want to ask you about. Um, and it, I feel like there's, we've got quite a lot to get through about the diminishing of human rights. Um, and I suppose the first thing is, maybe this is me being overly cynical, but, but has, in your opinion, the government used the pandemic in the past year of emergency legislation as a kind of, uh, well, cover for diminishing a, a lot of human rights? Yeah, I think the government has absolutely um, used the pandemic and the fact that so much of our energy has been taken up by just trying to survive to push through some really regressive reforms. Um, And I think that's kind of come on on a number of fronts. I want to be really clear in that, you know, Liberty absolutely acknowledges that this is a public health crisis. It is happening and we have needed strong public health measures to deal with that. So we're not kind of anti-mask, anti-vax, it's all a hoax. That's absolutely not where we're coming from. But at the same time, what we know, if we look at previous crises like 9-11, for example, and the war on terror, we know that crisis is the ground on which governments tend to cede long-term erosions of our rights and freedoms. And so it's absolutely right that we scrutinise some of the things that have happened during the pandemic and we ask, hang on a minute, was that really necessary? Was it proportionate? Is there another way that we could have protected public health without recourse to some of these coercive powers? So I think when we look at the pandemic response specifically, it's shown us something really worrying about the government's approach to kind of the shape of the state and how it thinks people should be motivated. Because, you know, this was a public health crisis, but what we've seen is criminal punishment and policing taking a really significant role in the response. Um, So, you know, we've seen it become a a matter of of criminal punishment or fines, um, you know, as to whether we're with certain people on a park bench or in a public place. Um, We've seen our family lives regulated to the most minute degree. And, you know, the question isn't for Liberty, did we need public health measures? Did we need physical distancing? Do we need masks and all the rest of it? We're not disagreeing with any of that. But what what we're asking is from a human rights perspective, was the stick, i.e. policing and fines, the way to encourage people to do that? And what has been the impact of using policing and criminal punishment in this way? Um, We know that, for example, those fines have been really unevenly handed out. Uh, So poorer people, working class people, people from ethnic minorities, all disproportionately likely to be fined and enforced against. And at the same time, those measures that would have supported people to comply with public health guidance, so proper sick pay, a place to isolate away from the rest of your household, enforcement against unsafe workplaces, a test and trace scheme where people could trust where their data was going to go, that it wouldn't be handed to the police. There are lots of those supportive measures that haven't been put in place. And so I think for us from a human rights perspective, we've been asking, has all that policing and criminal punishment been proportionate when there are kind of less harsh things that could have been used to try and get to the same place? And and am I right in thinking quite a lot of the fines that were handed out have now been uh, scrapped, haven't they? A lot of the fines when they've gone to court haven't actually gone through and, and were very hard to enforce. Yeah, so the really difficult thing with the fines is that there was no uniform right of appeal. So some local authorities would let you appeal. 
other local authorities you couldn't and you'd have to go all the way to court to defend yourself and risk an even bigger fine in order to maybe not get your fine. Um, so some people have been successful that way. Others, if they could, and it's a minority, have been able to judicial review police forces who've given them fines. But the reality is, is that, you know, lots of people haven't paid. Other people have paid even though they were wrongly fined just because there's there's no route of appeal. Um, and then for some of the charges that have been brought under coronavirus legislation, every single one of them has been found to be wrong. Um, so this kind of really fast changing legal landscape that's handed loads of powers that have changed quite quickly to the police while ministers have said one thing that was maybe guidance and not law and so on. It's all been incredibly confusing. And I think the government potentially really lost sight of the fact that this is a public health issue, right? It's not a policing issue. It's not a public order issue. This is a public health crisis that we're dealing with. So I, I suppose that this is a very uh, a tricky question to ask because I, I guess it, it, how, who's to say what the right answer is? And, and we'll discuss about police powers in a minute. But is is there a way of... In, would a better way of enforcing this just simply being better information and, and a lack of kind of policing or, or authority? How do you, you know, would there have been ways that perhaps you would have advised that they'd have gone ahead with putting forward the, the restrictions that we, that we had? That's, I mean, it's a great question. And look, in the heat of the moment, when it all starts, especially if you've not done the planning, it's really difficult to make these calls. Um, the government had a really difficult task at the same time, though, we're now over a year into this pandemic and a lot of the approach hasn't changed. And that's why I think more of the criticism is justified in terms of different ways of approaching it. I mean, the Coronavirus Act is one of the laws that's been used to deal with the pandemic alongside lots of other regulations. And that's a law that comes up for review every six months. And it's really draconian. It contains lots more police powers. Um, powers to unilaterally close borders, postpone elections and so on. There's some good things in it, but there's a lot that goes way too far. And we said it shouldn't become law and we've called for it to be repealed repeatedly. And what politicians kept saying to us was, well, there's no alternative. How are we going to do all the good things like let retired doctors come back to the NHS if we get rid of this law? So we said that was when it first came up for review in September last year. So we were like, OK, right, what are we going to do with this? So we just got tired and we thought we will write an alternative. So we wrote a whole alternative law. We called it the Protect Everyone Bill. And what it did is it maintained those bits of the Coronavirus Act that were useful, like the stuff around retired doctors. It stripped away those coercive powers and those measures that really made things worse for some vulnerable groups. Um, so, for example, there was a clause that made it easier for local authorities to cut social care to disabled people and other people in need of social care um, with really terrible results. We said, you know, measures like that, they need to come out. So we kept the good bits, we stripped away the awful bits, and then we included some measures that would have protected people who have been left out or overlooked. So, you know, renters who haven't been properly protected from eviction, migrants who've still been subject to the hostile environment. We propose, you know, a right of appeal against fines and an upper limit on, on how big those fines could be and a higher threshold for imposing those fines. Um, you know, we set out what we thought should happen with social care. So, you know, and this wasn't liberty on our own. We joined with lots of grassroots partners and some really cool lawyers who helped us do it. But we wrote a whole alternative law so that when MPs were going to vote on the Coronavirus Act again in March, they couldn't tell us there's no alternative. And that alternative law and repealing the Coronavirus Act, we had support from politicians in every single party. Um, the government, you know, politicians did ultimately vote to renew the Coronavirus Act. But what we wanted to do was say, look, we're a year out from this now. There is a different way of doing it. And our hope is that, you know, touch wood, but, you know, for future emergency situations, people will know there's a different way to do this. We don't have to default to just punishing people into submission. Was any of it used or incorporated into the Coronavirus Act or, or not? So they're not doing amendments to the Coronavirus Act, which is another way, you know, that's another problem. Parliament's been really sidelined in all of this. So laws of regulations have come into force basically at the stroke of a minister's pen, Parliament getting to vote on it weeks later. Even with the Coronavirus Act, MPs had one day to vote on it, on it initially. 
And when they've been able to review it every six months, it's either yes or no, they can't amend it. Um, so no, bits haven't been incorporated, but the government has said that it will stop using what we call the Care Act easements. So those provisions that let councils strip away social care for people, the government did say, we're gonna stop doing that, which is really important. And I think um, Dawn Butler, in fact, introduced it, introduced our Protect Everyone bill as her own private members bill and the prime minister undertook to speak to her about that. So the government is having to pay attention, um, but no, sadly, we would have loved to just see it become law. It was always unlikely, but it's now there on the parliamentary record for future governments to have a look at. Oh, it sounds so much, I wish we could vote you in. Um, that sounds much better. Um, one, of, one of the... Um... One of the things that we sort of mentioned a few times already, but obviously, uh, you know, policing, the police powers, um, police were given a lot more powers over the past year. And it sort of feels like that's directly led to one of the, the 30 bills that was mentioned in the Queen's speech, but the policing bill, which is possibly the most controversial one of, of many. Um, and uh, well, let, let's start from the very beginning. I suppose, why is the policing bill uh, a threat to, to democracy? Why have we seen so many kill the bill protests? Why are people so worried about it? Yeah, I mean, so this policing bill, and really at Liberty, we call it the police crackdown bill, because that's what it is. It's part of a much wider set of measures by government to essentially stop us speaking up and holding it to account. So, you know, the government has said it wants to water down the Human Rights Act. It wants to curtail judicial review, which is a legal process that we can all use to hold public authorities and government to account. Um, it's obviously talking about bringing in voter ID laws, which will disenfranchise lots of people. Um, and then we've seen the sidelining of Parliament repeatedly through the pandemic. And of course, when it came to that prorogation in relation to Brexit. So this is all part of a shrinking space for those of us who want to speak up and hold the government accountable. And the reason the policing bill is so dangerous um, is that it's it's attacking lots of people on several fronts and it's putting forward a vision of safety that's basically just saying to some people this is how we can keep you safe essentially by oppressing and restricting other groups so it's doing that on many different fronts you know there are measures in that bill that will really attack the way of life of gypsy roma traveler people um, especially nomadic people um, there are also measures in that bill that are going to disproportionately affect young black working class people um, because there's an increase in stop and search powers and an increase in data sharing between agencies when um, essentially in relation to gangs um, and serious youth violence. But we know that that's been racialized in a way that means it's particularly young black men that will be targeted by that. And then, of course, there's all of these measures around protest. and. It, it's quite technical, but it's a kind of death by a thousand cuts thing. It's that there are so many ways, so many things that the bill contains that will either make it easier for the police to intervene against protesters, um, will make it easier to criminalise protesters, will lower the threshold for when a protest is deemed too noisy or too disruptive. Um, and essentially, it's not gonna stop people speaking out. People aren't gonna stop protesting but it's going to increase the police's ability to intervene in certain protests and to create more scenes like we saw in Clapham Common and in Bristol. So it's, you know, I absolutely, I have no concerns about what people are going to do and that people are going to protest. That's our fundamental right. The government can pass what legislation it wants, but they're not gonna take that away from us. The problem is, is that we're going to see more confrontation and more use of power against protesters if this bill becomes law. Because the, the language around it is really vague, isn't it? Is it? Am I right in thinking it's anything that causes annoyance, any noise that causes annoyance or any gathering that causes annoyance? And it, and it, annoyance to who? And, you know, I sort of joke that the fact I've got a, a three-year-old daughter who kicks off in the supermarket all the time about not wanting to walk home. That could that annoys a lot of people. We could see her arrested <laughs> as a result. You know, is, is, it that sort of, is it that vague language that allows the police to kind of do with it what they want yeah it's serious annoyance serious disruption and there's there's also though a specific power for the home secretary to define sort of what would count as sufficiently disruptive um and of course what we know is especially what we've learned from the pandemic is that the law can say one thing 
we're not all lawyers. I'm not a lawyer. Um, so it can be really, you know, it's difficult to know exactly what the law is going to mean, especially when it's not drafted in a clear way. And then you have officers making operational decisions on the ground and, you know, they're going to use their discretion. One person's discretion is not another person's discretion. And then you end up with the scenes like the ones that we saw in Clapham Common. And I was there and that was really frightening and it was really disproportionate. Um, so it's the, the point is the language is there and that makes people think it certainly makes people with a lot of power and authority think, oh, well, maybe that means that I can do this. And in the heat of the moment, you you know, we're not all lawyers in the heat of the moment. So that's the problem. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And we'll be back with Gracie in a minute, but first... Okay, the last thing you want is more chat about COVID, but that doesn't mean it's the last thing you need. The last thing you need is me insisting on giving you more chat about COVID. And that's why I continue to make sure this podcast stays cult rather than actually popular by telling you a little bit about the current variant situation. As B1617 looks like it's already becoming the dominant strain over the Kent variant and the strain that I get from trying to open the jar of Marmite that's got stuck due to too much congealed Marmite. B1167 is currently more commonly known as the Indian variant, but I'm aware there's concern that much like when Trump called COVID the China flu, it could lead to racist finger pointing of the type that will make people avoid Indian restaurants or something stupid like that, which I hope isn't true. I mean, the Kent variant hasn't made people avoid things from Kent, has it? Like um, cricket or host houses. Well, I hope not. But for this bit, rather than keep saying B1167 like I'm listing a background Star Wars droid, I will say Indian variant because I trust that if you listen to this show, you're not going to go around finding every person of Indian origin and blame them for taking all of the Kent variant's jobs. A report into the Indian variant was released on Saturday night without any press release or any big news shebang, which is exactly what I like to do with jokes that I don't really want anyone to see. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a little bit fishy. What did it say? Well, uh, that on May the 15th, the Indian variant was on the cusp of being the dominant version of the virus in England. So we can assume that it probably is that now. And if it's not, it's really not trying very hard. It is, of course, partly dominant over the Kent one because, well, there's not as much Kent one left being knocked out by the last lockdown and vaccines. But it's also because the Indian variant is now growing twice as fast and is about 50% more transmissible. So pretty much the exact opposite of this podcast in every way. It's mostly growing in the northwest of England, London, the southeast, and it's low but growing in the southwest. And it's growing, but much less so in Yorkshire and the Midlands, though Yorkshire is very much doing its own independent virus production right now, which I'll get to at the end. Most cases aren't people who've travelled anywhere, so this virus is currently on home delivery, or at least successfully delivering at work, which makes it in all terms better than Yodel too. But the good news is that there's currently no evidence to say that it causes more severe illnesses than the Kent variant did, and having two doses of the vaccine is almost as effective against the Indian variant as it was against COVID 1.0. Woohoo! Um, but now the bad news. Sorry, I should have checked with you which one you wanted first. I can say the good news again at the end of this bit if you wanted it that way round. Is that better? Maybe that's better. The bad news is that Public Health England and SAGE are pretty concerned about vaccine effectiveness because while double doses is super strong in punching COVIDs, it's only from after two weeks of having the second dose. Only 43% of adults have had both and only 33% of those adults are more than two weeks since they got jabbed. Overall, only 30% of the population have been jabbed if you include children who selfishly can't get vaccinated because apparently they can't do clinical trials on kids even though my agent wants to eat enough E-numbers to qualify for some sort of science experiment. 
PHE reported that two doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine is actually only 60% effective against the shiny new variant. Over 80s have an eight-week wait for a second jab, under 80s a 12-week wait with it then being a two-week wait until it's super effective. And with AstraZeneca, that's only 60%, which would all be fine if the Indian variant wasn't doubling in growth every single week. But some more good news, though. Aside from all that quite horrible bad news, the more good news is that vaccines may and should hopefully reduce symptoms in those that get it, even if it means they can still carry it. So it could potentially mean less hospital admissions, apart from all the people who catch it off someone who's avoided a hospital admission. Oh, wait, sorry, I was trying for good news. It's my bad. But no, it could be fine. We don't know it yet. Uh, it could also be not fine, and that's why Sage are recommending overreacting rather than risking a third wave, which would mean more deaths, more restrictions, and more importantly than any of your lives or your family's lives, I won't be able to shout at drunken stag dudes on a Friday night for at least another year, so come on, have some sympathy. The report didn't contain data about transmissions in schools, which it should have done, and local reports said secondary school children have three times the rates of infection than 20-year-olds, which they then spread to those they live with. So it seems odd that this report was delayed until after the local elections and then delayed until after the lifting of restrictions last week, which included school children not having to wear masks in school anymore. It was obviously more important just to let everyone go to the pub than, you know, wait and see what happens and curb infections before they even start. As someone who's been to the pub since they reopened, I'd definitely have preferred to wait three more weeks to have a pint than say, remember that pint really fondly as we head into another four-year lockdown. The report also shows that once India was added to the red travel list, there was a sharp drop in cases from people travelling. So had Johnson been less bothered about trade deals and people's lives or the NHS and done that weeks and weeks before, it might have been different. But how was he to know? It's not like this situation has come up so many times before. <sighs> but the government is still super keen on us heading straight at June the 21st for our and the new variants freedom, which could still be fine. You know, if Test and Trace actually worked for us instead of Dino Harding and the coronavirus, if vaccines were being dished out even quicker with shorter time frames between doses and people were supported to self-isolate. The latter is something that's being trialled with eight areas around the country receiving a £12 million pot of dosh to give people mental health support if they're by themselves, as well as provide alternative accommodation to people who may be sharing with someone who tests positive. You can still get a £500 grant too if you have to self-isolate, but only if you qualify with the right criteria. And in January, two-thirds of those that applied were rejected. So, you know, the government seems to think that you'll be really incentivised to stay at home through sheer want to help others while not being able to feed your kids or pay your rent. Yes, definitely. That's the key. Save lives by starving to death. What a winning situation. So I'm not doomsaying, I'm not doom-mongering, I'm not Doctor Doom, I'm not Orlando Doom, but I'm also looking back at the past year where the government insists they weren't pushing for herd immunity while telling Philip Schofield that the way ahead was herd immunity. And so you do wonder if they're going to get this right, ever. If not, let's hope variant B1167 gets bored of socialising before we all have to again. Oh, and in Yorkshire, you remember earlier I said that Yorkshire? In Yorkshire, there's now a new triple mutant variant, which sounds a lot like something the X-Men would have to fight. There's only 49 recorded cases of it so far, and again, currently no evidence that it makes vaccines less good or causes severe illnesses, but it is curious as to how it's got its own strange combo of variations, which I guess means it's totally doing its own thing, and fair play to Yorkshire for going for that whole sort of local homebrewed community virus investment. You never know, it could just be a matter of weeks, and we can all start our own local virus variant schemes. Well, hang on, I'm not sure that's a good thing. And now back to Gracie. Is this, I mean, obviously, um, this discriminates against a, a number of people that you mentioned, you know, traveller groups uh, and young black people and, and people who are wishing to protest. But I suppose overall, this is another avenue where the, gov the government are now going to be less accountable. If we can't protest about things or it's harder for us to call them to account about things that they're doing, um, they're being let off the hook again. And it, how many, how, how much have they kind of restricted uh, their accountability in the, in the last year? Are you seeing this as a, uh, a bigger and bigger problem? Absolutely. I mean, this is part of a wider government war on accountability. The government is really just trying to hide itself from as much scrutiny as possible while expanding the coercive powers um, of the state. So this is just one part of a much bigger government bid to make itself untouchable by dismantling systems of accountability. And, you know, protest is really vital to a healthy democracy. And for some people who are disenfranchised in other ways, you know, access to justice has been massively cut. So yes, the Human Rights Act and judicial review are there for now, but it's become more and more difficult to use these tools. Similarly, voting at the ballot box, you know, there are people who don't feel represented by political parties, voter ID laws are potentially gonna disenfranchise more people. So there's people who can't have their say that way. 
all through the pandemic, elected MPs haven't been able to have a say about the laws that have governed our day-to-day lives. Um, So if you want to go to your MP and say, you know, can you raise this matter for me? Their power has been diminished. So it's across the board that we're seeing this shrinking space for all of us who would want to speak up. And that's a dangerous road for all of us, but it's a dangerous road for government because if you're not listening to anyone, um, how are you going to know when you're getting things wrong? If you're just shutting people down at every turn, um, yeah, it becomes very hard to sort of say that we're still in a democracy if you're not letting anyone speak out about anything. And I, and I suppose on, on a similar level, you, you briefly mentioned voter ID, but from, from what I understand, that's just going to stop a lot of people from being able to vote. Which is that then again, another voice and another group of people that can't have any say in, in how things are run. Yeah, I mean, in a healthy democracy, everybody should have the right to vote. Like, we're really back at Democracy 101 at the minute, which is really, really, really worrying. Um, But introduction of mandatory voter ID is going to undermine that right to vote. You know, there are at least three and a half million people um, in the UK who don't have photo ID. And a lot of them come from communities that are already marginalised and underrepresented by our political system. And the government's own figures show that our current voting systems are secure and safe. So this is really a solution in search of a problem. And, you know, at Liberty would say, look, there is a lot more to be done. You know, if we're interested in electoral integrity, which is what this bill is going to be called, there's a lot to be done to actually take down the barriers that people face to voting. You know, we need much better civic and political education we could be looking at automatic voter registration so that, you know, when you go to register for your GP, you also get registered to vote. There's lots of things that could be done to take down those barriers. This is the government just throwing them up. Which is, is bonkers, as you said, that there's no there's no evidence for or very, very little voter fraud in this country. So that it's not really, I guess it, it won't dissuade voter fraud because there isn't really much to begin with. No, there's hardly any. And in-person voting at the ballot box is incredibly secure. Um, And, you know, the government has tried to raise, oh, well, this is to deal with, you know, things that have happened around mayoral elections, the kind of look look for remand stuff. And the government's tried to say, oh, well, you know, you show ID to go and get a parcel, etc. None of the arguments hold any water. Hardly any of them are to do with in-person voting at the ballot box. And the research that we have shows that that's safe and secure. There isn't widespread evidence of voter fraud, but there is absolutely evidence that this is going to disenfranchise people. And I think in the context of all of those other threats to our speaking out and that shrinking space, I, you know, I think it's completely reasonable for people to conclude that the agenda here is not electoral integrity. Right. Well, considering how worrying all of this is and, uh, you know, and, and also, as we mentioned, there's no real evidence voter ID. You mentioned that police are now going to have bigger powers for stop and search, which we, we've spoken about lots in this podcast. There's not really any evidence that that helps or works. And it's clear that they're not using fact or or research to deal with, it, you know, to push through a lot of these policies. What What is it that we should be doing then as what should the listeners be doing to, to fight against this? Because obviously, you know, while you say that people will still go out and protest, it's probably going to make people quite worried about doing it. Some people are going to be quite concerned. I know I say this just as a parent of a toddler now. I'm quite worried about going to, I was worried for the past year because there's no lose anywhere, which makes protesting impossible. But also, um, you know, just the idea of if uh, powers can be used and you're out with a kid, suddenly that stops arguing people. Things, little worries like that. So wh- what is it that we should be doing is it a simple matter of just kind of online campaigning is that is that as far as we can go so I mean I appreciate that I've sort of been a bit of a well I I feel when I talk about these issues I feel like a bit of a doom monger and I just really want to underscore that the reason that the government is behaving like this is because our accountability mechanisms work and because together we actually are a really powerful force you know for making change in society and for holding the government to account so I don't want people to feel disempowered listening to this the point is is that we are powerful and effective and that is why the government wants to do what it's doing so let's start from a position of strength um in terms of what people should be doing you know obviously Liberty's a membership organization we've got 12,000 members please join us our members are our board they set our policy please come and be part of Liberty um but you know we've also seen this amazing grassroots movement around kill the bill and indeed around you know climate crisis around Black Lives Matter and I think what I always want to say to people And this is what I learned in my kind of early grassroots campaigning with Against Borders for Children, 
is that movements need everyone. You don't have to be out in the street. Like there are lots of reasons that people can't or won't go out to protest. There are lots of skills that people can have, you know, so it may be that that people are disabled and, and so there are barriers that stop them going out to protest or that spaces aren't accessible. People have got caring responsibilities. People are just working loads of hours trying to get by. Like I get there's lots of reasons actually that mean that we don't have time or there are things in our way. Um, but what I would say is like, all mobilizations need people, you know, need people to do things like printing, you know, checking in on our friends, you know, one of the, when Black Lives Matter happened, not happened, but when those protests happened last summer, one of the best things for me was the number of my friends who reached out to me and said, wow, this is massive. How are you doing? How is this feeling for you? Like, you know, sometimes when particular communities are being targeted or are mobilizing, we will know, we'll know people from those groups. Do we talk to our friends about these things? Do we ask them how they're doing, how they're feeling? Is there anything we can do to support them? Like it starts in those sort of relationships of humanity. You don't have to be out in the street waving a placard. Um, there are obviously lots of kind of online actions that people can do. And I think that around Kill the Bill, Sisters Uncut have previously put together, and I think UK Black Lives Matter have put together actions that people can do online because they recognise that not everybody is going to be able to go out and protest. I think it's really important for us to all be clued up on our rights. So Liberty, we always, we often issue kind of, and we have done throughout the pandemic, we issue guidance and advice and information on these are your rights if you're protesting, this is what you can do, this is how you can feel safe. Those basic things, I would say it's really important that we all get clued up on that and we share that information with friends and family. Um, I mean, I think that's most of it. As I say, I think we should cut, we should start from a position of strength. And I think, yeah, the government response to the pandemic, lots of it has been really coercive, but let's also cast our minds back to all of those mutual aid groups that sprang up. Um, all of these people putting their hands up to say, yeah, I want to take care of my neighbours and I also want them to know me so that if I need something, they might be able to help me out. I think it's in that kind of orientation and those actions close to home. That's kind of how we build a culture of solidarity. And that's how we make things like this nightmare policing bill just unenforceable. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, thanks. That's a lot more positive. Thank you. And I think you're right in that, that you know, it's, I think the thing that we always think about is, uh, you know, the, the worries that protests are going to be curbed. But you look back at the past year, and as you mentioned, like the Black Lives Matter protest that had a ripple effect in, and, and I'm sure part of that was also that we're all at home, we we're able to see it on the TV, even if we couldn't be part of it. But also, Kill the Bill has been resonating across the country. And even, I mean, as I say as a non football fan, but even the protests against the European Super League, that had quite an immediate effect. So it's been protests that have caused more movement in the past year than pretty much anything else against against government policy. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the what was it? The, the school strikers who didn't like the exam algorithm, you know, that got withdrawn. There's, you know, there's lots of things to be hopeful about. Um, and, and as I say, that's the start. This bill is a reaction. Um, it's not just this isn't being led by government. It's government's response to us. Brilliant. So we've just got to do more things to make them react more. <laughs> no, wait, hang on. I'll work there. No, that, that, that doesn't work. Well, with more things and then they'll react. We'll work it out, but it definitely they'll is keep, very, yeah. They'll keep reacting. We don't need to. They will keep reacting. We need to keep campaigning for what we want to see. We shouldn't just get stuck being defensive. Let's keep going for what we want to see and they'll just have to react to us. That's much better than what I said. Thank you. Um, right, well, Gracie, thank you. It's been really lovely having you on the show again. And and, and the question um, I asked you is about five years ago, actually, but I'm sure it's changed. Um, in the, apart from yourself and and obviously Liberty HQ, which you said is a membership people can uh, find and join. Um, I wondered what other people and campaigns and sites um, that you think listeners uh, should check out, either for sort of defending human rights or just anything about political opinion. Who, who do you go to? Who are the people that you would recommend others follow? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I would say I want to start listing partners, but I know I won't remember all of them. So but so if you look at Liberty's Protect Everyone Bill on that Web page, we've listed and thanked everybody who we consulted with. Um, you know, so partners like Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, um, ACORN, Disability Rights UK, 
Um, there are other group, you know, groups on housing like shelter and crisis, for example. I mean, the point is it's an ecosystem. So there's, there's lots and lots of groups. I think we've got to shout out the grassroots, you know, Sisters Uncut have been doing amazing work, Black Lives Matter UK. Um, I, I, one of the areas of particular threat at the minute, I think, is in relation to um, trans rights and trans liberation. So, you know, I listen to um, I listen to gendered intelligence. I listen to Stonewall. Um, there are kind of lots of individual trans campaigners that I that I follow. So I think and obviously we're also seeing a lot of stuff, a lot of people mobilizing in support of Palestine at the minute. I don't think I can list sort of specific groups. I mean, I think you kind of have to be a bit of an autodidact. You have to go out and do your own research. Um, a good starting point, though, is, you know, the people who spoke to Liberty about the Protect Everyone Bill. That was a lot of time and energy from small, underfunded frontline groups, and every single one of them um, deserves attention and support. It was so great to get Gracie back on the podcast after all this time. Um, you can follow her at Gracie Maybe on Twitter and Liberty HQ can be found at libertyhumanrights.org.uk and all the links to join up as a member or find and follow their social media accounts can be found there too. What other issues or political areas haven't I had someone on the show to talk about yet? Has someone written a book, article or piece of graffiti on a motorway bridge that you'd like me to talk to them about? Uh, let me know, which of course you can do at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can have your organic recommendations secretly smuggled to me in unmarked bags by a butler. Um, but to be honest, I think round my way, a butler creeping about would be the most out of ordinary noticeable thing. And uh, the next door mob uh, would have the police on them in minutes. So, as always, probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Yeah, really. Yeah, look, I know it's hard to accept, but that is that is it. Yeah. Oh. But hey, turn that frown upside down, because this will return next week, no matter how many times you try to destroy it. It's like a curse, but you know, one that I hope you enjoy. And if you do enjoy it, tell your social spheres to give it a try, craft some word poetry and a lovely five-star review for the show on your podcast app of choice, and why not rid yourself of all that pesky cash you have unfairly taking up space in your bank account by donating it all to this show at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, joining the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, or via the ACAST supporter button. Thanks a million and four to Acast, my brother, Last Skeptic, and Cat Day. And uh, this will be back next week when Dominic Cummings reveals that Boris Johnson never had a plan for what happens after Brexit, and we all have to act really surprised so he doesn't get too upset. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by Herd Immunity, the new spray that guarantees you will not be trampled on by sheep. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.